Welcome to It's Who You Know, the podcast, bridging the gap between Jewish leaders and those who follow them. Gain insight from Jewish professionals who make the decisions that influence your Jewish world. Welcome to It's Who You Know, the podcast. This is your host, Michelle W. Malkin. My guest today is Abby Liebman, who is the president and CEO of Mazon, a Jewish response to hunger which is a national advocacy organization working to end hunger among people of all faiths and backgrounds in the United States and Israel. Abby has worked with many nonprofit organizations over her career, including Jewish World Watch, Jewish Family Service, California Women Lawyers, American Jewish Congress, the West Hollywood Humane Services Commission, the Jewish Federation, Council of Greater Los Angeles, and the Progressive Jewish Alliance. Abby co-founded the California Women's Law Center, which she directed for 12 years, and has been a leading advocate for women's rights and social justice. Her list of accomplishments are long and inspiring, and you can see all of them on our website. I've asked Abby on our program today, as I have not had the opportunity to focus much of this program on Jewish social justice and advocacy work which is a particular passion of mine and quite a large sector of what we do as Jews in an organized way. So I'm excited to have Abby on here to help explore not only this area of our field, but what kind of lessons we can learn from doing that work that are applicable to all sort of sections of our community. So thank you so much for being on the program today, Abby. No, thank you for having me, Michelle. It's a real pleasure. And it's lovely to see you again. I worked with you at Jewish World Watch when I was right out of college. So is who you know, and here you are, someone I know, which is rare for this program. So it's nice to see you. So let's start with your personal story. And like I said, your bio is long and inspiring and on our website, but want to hear it from you. Well, I don't think I'm going to go all the way back to the beginning, but starting with why I went to law school is probably a good idea. I really was more or less an accidental law student. I knew that I wanted to do something that would give me a post-college graduate degree. And I was really interested in making change. I was really interested in engaging in some kind of work in the world that would matter. I used to tell my parents when I was trying to decide what I wanted to do with my life that I needed to know that it mattered that I was in the world, that somehow the world was a better place because I was in it. I settled on going to law school because it seemed to me it would give me a great general background for any number of careers. And the honest truth is that I couldn't make up my mind what I wanted to do with myself. And I had no idea what kind of career path to carve out. I wasn't one of those people who knew from the time they were six that they wanted to be a firefighter. I just really didn't know what I wanted to do. I went to law school with that in mind. And along the way, you know, I did try to do the more traditional law route. Remembering, of course, that when I was in law school, there were very few women. My class, I started at Hastings College of Law and I transferred to UCLA. But at Hastings, they had one of the, if not the largest percentage of women in law school at the time, and it was 30%, which still means that two thirds of the class, and this is in 1978 to 81. So I mean, 60% of the class is male. And I also found myself being a very non-traditional student. I wanted to do things in my clerking or my part-time work that just was outside the ken of most people in law school. So I go to law school, I get involved in sort of the quasi-government world. And from there, 
my career path, if you look at my resume, it begins to look like there was actually a plan here. <laughs> but no, uh, just sort of moving around from place to place, looking at things that I felt that I could connect with and that were engaging to me. And simultaneously with this, I got involved in the Jewish community as a volunteer. And the things I wanted to do in the Jewish community also sort of dovetailed with this burgeoning interest of mine about public policy and change and social justice. And I got involved with the JCRC and the Los Angeles Federation and... A blessed memory. (laughs) Exactly. That really was my passion in the Jewish community for a very long time. And at that time, the JCRC was an unbelievable hub of activity in Los Angeles. And it was the place in the Jewish community where other struggling communities or civil rights and social justice-minded organizations would connect. That's where they went. So it was really flourishing. It was a very exciting time. And there were some terrible things happening in California at that time too, which made that work really important. My first foray into women's rights work really came accidentally. I swear to God, I I sound like somebody who just like, oh, I'm so arbitrary about my life. But really, I thought I was more purposeful. But I was working for a state senator. And as happens, we got a call to come and speak to an organization that was interested in about how a bill becomes law kind of thing. The scheduler asked if I would be available and would I be interested in doing it. And I said, sure. And it was for an organization called the Commission for Sex Equity, which advised the LA School Board on sex discrimination issues. And when I was there, they said, you know, by the way, we're looking for an associate director. I said, okay, well, I'll go back and tell the people at the office. And I told them, and the woman who had been with Senator Sorotti for, I think, his entire 17-year career in the legislature looked at me, she said, you should apply for that job. Right. They were telling you about it. So I did. That was my first real experience in doing work on women's rights, and I loved it. So again, remember, we're talking, this is the early 80s, and now this feels very timely when I say it, but at the time, it was one of those issues that most people wouldn't discuss. My boss at the commission said I should identify an issue on which I wanted to work that would become my own, and I decided to focus on sexual harassment and education. That was because no one was doing anything on it. Right. Now it looks like I was so prescient. You know, it's one of those experiences where you learn by doing, you just get thrown in the deep end. And my boss there, Phyllis Chang, was an amazing mentor and taught me a lot. And I went on from there. I ran a nonprofit that did similar work for about a year, year and a half, something like that. And then I went to work at Public Counsel, which is now a very large legal services agency in Los Angeles. But at the time, it was relatively small. I really wanted to broaden my portfolio there and do some additional women's rights work. And my boss, Steve Nissen, who truly was and remains a mentor to me, said, if you really want to do women's rights work, you can't do that here. Mm. This board of directors is going to be too conservative for you. Right. You wouldn't be able to do reproductive rights work, for example. I said, what kind of women's rights work doesn't do reproductive right. rights? He said, one in a legal services office. I went, oh, okay. I was frustrated by that became also was more involved in the women's law community. And I was having dinner with a friend of mine who was the executive director of Women Lawyers Association of Los Angeles. And we were complaining about the fact that there was no resource for women in Los Angeles that could advise them on their legal rights or set precedent in terms of pushing the law ahead or protecting their rights. And we were at dinner at a restaurant that no longer exists called Stratton's Grill. And those are those restaurants where they put paper on the 
table and mm-hmm. with crayons. Yeah. So we made a short list of some people that we should talk to. And Jennifer looked at me and she said, you know, if we don't do this, no one else is going to do it. And I was like, okay, let's just have a meeting. Let's call these people. We'll have a meeting. We have a meeting in my apartment in Santa Monica. And Susan Grode, who was and is a prominent entertainment lawyer in Los Angeles, was there. And Susan said to me, what does it take to incorporate? And I said, well, you have to write up articles of incorporation and you have to pay the filing fee and then you have to apply for tax exempt status. And she said, well, how much does it cost? And I said, I don't know, it was like 248 bucks or something, which I knew because one of the jobs I had at public council was helping to incorporate nonprofits. She said, well, here's a check, go do it. And I firmly believe that if she had not done that, there would be no Women's Law Center. Right. Because like a lot of things, we're all talking and energized and excited. And unless you move from that vision and energy and excitement to actual concrete action, nothing happens. It's really important. It's why I look at a lot of movement politics and see nothing because you cannot just organize people to be outraged unless you actually then execute on that outreach. And there are only right. so many people that can do that. So that was on. 12 years. She wanted you to execute on that outrage. Yeah, exactly. That I spent the next 12 years of my life running the Women's Law Center. And I left there in 2001 to do consulting and teaching. I did a lot of work around sex discrimination and culture change and also leadership development. And the leadership work also was mostly focused in the Jewish social justice space. So I sort of was combining my day job and my after day job. So bridging both those worlds into my consulting work and then got approached about the job at Mizone and here I am. Easy one, two, three jump, right? (laughs) Well, yeah, it took 10 years and then I've been here for six years. So all this is a long time ago now. So one of the things that I talked to you about before this interview is, you know, I'm born and raised in Los Angeles, spent a lot of time there. Amazon is one of the few, from my perception anyway, national organizations that operate out of Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. And I'm curious just to hear a little bit about both why you think that is and the challenges or the positives that you've encountered trying to run a national organization from the West Coast. You are absolutely correct in your observation. I would say across many sectors, the Mozone is one of the few national nonprofit organizations that is headquartered in Los Angeles. MALDEF is another one, the Mexican-American Legal Defense and Education Fund. There are so many good reasons why this is where we are. But setting those aside for the moment for the purposes of your question, there are interesting challenges that are actually probably rooted in the time difference between Los Angeles and New York. Now, first, in the Jewish social justice space, most of the Jewish social justice organizations that are national are headquartered in New York. Right, That's just the way it is. There are a couple that may be in D.C., one or two in Chicago, but they're almost all headquartered in New York. Right, which is interesting, but I didn't really understand that until I moved here, and I was like, oh, okay. (laughs) Yeah, everything's there. Having that difference, again, in the space that, you know, is the need for communication and collaboration, which is very important. We don't start our day here until it feels like it's late morning that their time. Right, right. We haven't ended and they're closed. So there's some of that. Then there's a perspective about Los Angeles in particular, let alone California in general, that doesn't lend itself to a reputation for gravitas. Hmm, okay. So, So people see... California as kooky and, you know, cutting edge, but a little bit 
weird. And people right. see Los Angeles as shallow and narcissistic. Of course, I think nothing could be further from the truth. Right, right. <laughs> and, um, it's also a place where there's a lot of innovation and creativity. Yeah. Does that perception make it more difficult to do your work? Oh, well, they're based out of Los Angeles. Any Anything like that? First of all, I think most people just assume we're headquartered in New York. I mean, when I right. first meet anybody <laughs> that has no familiarity with Mazone, other than they know what we are and they've been giving to us and they love us and they'll ask me where I live. And when I say I live in LA, they'll say, oh, well, do you guys have an office there? And I say, that's where our headquarters is. And they just faint, you know. Right. <laughs> There are presumptions that happen throughout any sector, I think. And then in the Jewish social justice space, there are a whole lot of them. And in nonprofits, generally, there are. But most of it plays into that. So I don't think that there's anything overwhelming or insurmountable about the challenges that we look at. But I'm telling you, most of them are probably rooted in the time difference. Right. That is a challenge. My husband and I were long distance for two years before mm. one of us moved. So I know that's, that's <laughs> great. So tell us a little bit about the work of Mazone, your theory of change and how you operate and how you impact the issue of hunger. So Mazone's over 30 years old. It was started by Leonard Fine at a moment when he felt that the United States was not confronting the crisis of hunger in this country, let alone anywhere else in the world. And he thought Jews had a special responsibility to step up and be responsive. And for those who don't know, much of the anti-hunger movement was birthed in the 1980s. It was a response to some of what was happening with the economy and with the political change that was coming out of Washington, D.C. And that's really where the food bank movement was born. Mazone's initial charge was, as it still is, was to try to address hunger now and then also try to end it. So we see ourselves as an advocacy organization, the focus of which is to change the United States and in Israel, which we also work with, in how it responds to hunger in this country and in Israel. And so our work is very public policy focused. We do a lot of advocacy work. We do legislative work. We do that nasty word lobbying. So are you organizing the Jewish community to go and meet with representatives? Or are you just kind of funding a more professionalized work of lobbying and advocacy? Or are you organizing the community into some kind of action? Well, Mazone is not focused on community organizing. It's not movement right. building. It is really about, if anything, it would be a grass tops movement, but it is really about engaging Jews and the Jewish community in an awareness and a support for the work that we do. And part of the work that we do is to grow and nurture an advocacy infrastructure in the United States that is principally focused on trying to end hunger. So Mazone did that very successfully for the first 25 to 28 years of its existence. And now we are about to embark on a very similar strategy to what Label had originally charted for this organization in order to grow advocacy infrastructure in parts of the United States where it does not exist. And this is typically in places where the ecosystems around those who are poor 
are really very non-supportive. Mm-hmm. So helping right. to grow a response there is very important to us. So that piece of work is where we do our grant making. Okay. is probably best known for that. But that grant making is done with an end in mind. And what is that end? The end is to engage communities in advocacy for change. And we do our own advocacy work and our own education and outreach. And when we talk about ourselves as a Jewish response to hunger, it's because we see our work as being informed by Jewish values and ideals and teachings. It is not trying to rally the entire Jewish community to get behind one piece of legislation, for example. We just don't see ourselves doing that kind of work. But knowing and understanding what hunger is in America is vital, and every American should know it. And if we start with the Jewish community, that's a big enough part of the American consuming public that for us, that's an important step and an important constituency that only we can reach. Right. It's definitely an interesting model to give the power to the professionals, right? And saying that like, we actually know how to do our work the best, empower us to do that work. I think a lot of our organizations are very lay heavy led and sometimes staff can feel more like a pawn for said lay leaders. And to think about kind of your organization and your work to say we can be most effective by empowering our professionals to do their work in this area. I think that's certainly something that many advocacy organizations do embrace. I mean, when you think about legal services, which is part where I came out of, although Mazone was birthed long before I came along, that's what you do. I mean, they're staffed by lawyers, the lawyers do the work, but you can never do it without the partnership of those lay leaders, particularly in our case, our board of directors. We have a very engaged board. We have a board that provides us with vision and guidance and oversight and we are very much conscious of them as partners in setting our priorities and the direction in which we go. And because we do so much work in Washington, D.C., having relationships on our board, both with members of Congress, but also other leadership in either the nonprofit or the business or the political community is vitally important for us. And that's how you stretch your resources, right? Not as if our vice president of public policy knows everybody, but we know that we have people on our board who know those everybody he doesn't know. You know, that's how we grow our own resources. So in thinking about your years at Muzzone and thinking about the other organizations in the Jewish community in this particular area of work, I'd love to hear from you just kind of your perspective on some challenges in sort of the field and also some things that, you know, Jewish social justice organizations do really, really well. And maybe even over time, you know, maybe they've gotten better or worse or kind of your perception on the field itself. I think that, first of all, the fact that there is a field called Jewish social justice is an incredibly valuable idea. I don't think we should sell that short. There's the social justice world and there's the Jewish social justice world. And I don't know too many other populations or communities that have a social justice movement identified with them. So it is an important message about who Jews are who we see ourselves as, how we see ourselves engaging in the larger American context that speaks volumes to me about why we have a Jewish social justice movement and why, of course, in America, they would expect that that might happen. This is where we sit. It's why and how a lot of Jews identify as Jews, that they see that this is an essential part of being Jewish. 
And we see that in our synagogue partners and our relationships with congregations all over this country. So given that, you know, the Jewish community has always been a fairly male-led, it's a male model of leadership in many respects. Some of the things that I've seen change just in the six years I've been at Mazon is that I am no longer the only female CEO in some room. I think that there are a growing number of women who head Jewish organizations, still the minority. When the forward publishes that salary study, (laughs) there's always a huge element of gender disparity in it. It's what everybody always comments on. I think that I lead differently. I don't know that all women lead differently, but I do just truly embrace the idea that I have a perspective about leadership that's really informed by the feminist values that I learned to appreciate early in my career. And I see those things as being powerful and important in terms of the idea of creating opportunities and inclusivity and transparency. And that doesn't mean we don't have hierarchy, but it does mean that everybody has access Mm-hmm. in some way or another, to decision-making. And the more that I can engage and empower people around that, the happier I am. Doesn't right. mean I always say yes. <laughs> I, yeah, I mean, I just don't, but I, it's not a collective. You've been listening to It's Who You Know, the podcast. I'm your host, Michelle W. Melkin. We want to thank the Jim Joseph Foundation for their support, which will ensure this project continues throughout 2018. If you or someone you know would like to support this project, please contact us through our website. It's whoyouknowthepodcast.com. Before returning to my conversation with Abby, I'd like to take a moment to introduce you to the guest for our next episode. Michael Liepman, Executive Director for NADA, the National Association of Temple Administration, who discusses with me the dynamic role of executive directors or administrators in our synagogues and how a network of these professionals support one another. Here's a clip from our upcoming conversation. Many of our colleagues, similar to me, have come from all forms of business and social services, attorneys, you name it. I was a member of a congregation and was friends with the rabbi at the time. We had children that same age. I had young children. And he saw that I was never at the synagogue because I was working constantly in the hotel world. And uh, he told me about a position that was available in Marin. And the rest, as they say, is history. I was in the field as an executive director for more than 20 years and started, as you said, Michelle, two years ago as NADA's first executive director. Be sure to listen to the rest of my conversation with Michael in our next episode of It's Who You Know. But for now, back to Abby. There's a lot of conversation kind of, and I've explored this in a few different of my conversations, but the idea of internal mentorship, right? Internally, who's got your back and and positions in which someone's not just invested in you because of the return you give for the organization, but invested in you as a person for maybe what's your next step, right? When you leave the organization and trying to create that kind of environment for your staff and What I'm hearing from you is saying, maybe as a female, you know, you're a little more in tune to those aspects of your job as a leader internally with your staff than maybe other genders. (laughs) Possibly, yes. Um, Possibly be. Yeah, I think that's possible. I also think that 
I've done so much work around leadership and understanding what that is. And because, as I said, much of it was in the Jewish social justice space. I know a lot about those institutions. And I learned good things. I learned bad things. And I've tried to take those lessons to heart and bring them into the workplace where I think that a lot of people don't have that kind of exposure. I mean, people promote into leadership for all kinds of reasons, a lot of which have nothing to do with their skill set. And, you know, there's no argument that there are very definite skills that are involved in leading an organization. And it's, I think a lot of it can be learned. I do a lot of it and I find intuitive. I don't even know how to teach that, but I know how to look for it. And I know how to see that spark and Mm -hmm. to cultivate it in somebody. And that's a value that I bring into the organization that I often don't see in other places. Right. Regardless of who leads them. Right. The work of leading edge is kind of helping to bring some of these things to light and really looking at and saying, hey guys, Mm -hmm. like in the next 10 years, we're going to have 60 plus percent of our CEOs turn over and they're not looking behind them and saying, ah, like this person I'm going to groom or look at a different organization and say, ah, they have somebody there that they've been grooming that I could imagine kind of coming into this position and really thinking about how do we grow our people, right? How do you be very conscious about that in our work, which it's easy not to do, right? It's easy to be focused on your mission, to be focused on the work, to be focused on your donors and the budget and the finances and for that to be a secondary concern. Yes and no. Because if you are doing those other things, Michelle, then you should be thinking in terms of the future of the organization. I mean, when I make decisions, what I tell my staff is that nothing is personal and nothing's about me. It's always what's in the best interest of my zone. Mm-hmm. And if we want to stretch that in some context, it's about what's in the best interest of my zone stakeholders or the populations that we serve or the people in need, if that's okay. But generally it is, from my perspective, when I'm doing my work, it's what's in the best interest of myself. Will this make us stronger, better able to do the work that we're doing? Will it move us forward in a way that's creative and important? If I spend my energy on X, is that just self-gratification, but really just a waste of time? You know, right. those kinds of questions have to be asked and that's my job. I'm not as engaged in much of the program work as other people are. I'm not engaged in as much of the fundraising work as other people are, but that's because it's my job to hire and delegate appropriately. And I take that very seriously Mm -hmm. and I believe in that. And that's why there's a whole sense of team here and partnership and collaboration. And that's partly because I need to know what's going on. And you can't do everything, right? So so for our colleagues out there that are maybe in middle management and looking at a position like yours, it's kind of a twofold question. First is what are the skills to be developed? What are things to kind of be thinking about? In addition to as we're already discussed, ways to focus on your staff and development. And what are the challenges? Like, what do you want to be honest with that? Like, and upfront, like, this is the reality of a position like this. I would say that you have to be somebody who can multitask, whatever that might mean to somebody. To me, it means that you have the ability to assimilate a lot of very diverse information and notice that it's applicable in different contexts. So if I get a piece of information, I look and I say, is this important to fundraising? Is this important to our military hunger work? Is this important to our synagogue organizing work? 
I'm constantly asking those questions and making decisions about who needs to know what and how do they proceed. So being able to take information in and do so in a way that allows you to move it around into different places. And then also the literal multitasking, the idea that I can sit at home and watch TV and go through my inbox, which actually when I ran the Women's Law Center, I did that too, although it was a real inbox then. It was you know, take a bunch of papers home. But I think you can't be afraid of long hours and you have to be somebody who embraces the problem solving that comes with this. So problem solving skills, having a vision, being committed, those qualitative touchstones that people talk about a lot with leadership, I think are very important in the CEO of a nonprofit. I think it's that other piece that we discussed a few minutes ago. It's not enough to have a vision. You have to know how to implement it. You have to know how to get concrete. You know, we met each other through Jewish World Watch. I mean, that's the amazing thing about Janice Kaminer Resnick is that she had this vision and then she was able to execute on it. And there aren't a lot of people who know how to do that. Mm -hmm. And to go from that higher level thinking into the concrete is a very important aspect of running an organization. Now, I'm much more entrepreneurial than I am sort of stable. I don't know what right. the opposite of entrepreneurial is, but I like starting things. I like creating. I like that idea of stretching. And when you come into an organization that's 30 years old and you say, okay, the board wants me to grow and change and shake things up, you know, you have to be able to show people that that can happen without them being overwhelmed or getting lost in the mix. And that's really my job. My job is to pace things out, but to push and to listen when I'm getting pushed back to know, mm -hmm. hmm, is this real or is this just fear? You know, right. that kind of thing. So you have to understand people. Nothing else. That's the most important thing. You have to be right. able to understand people. And it's a very interesting place that I feel like you're in because for me as a younger professional, I'm like, change. Great. Let's do it. Awesome. <laughs> like All about it. And like in your position and experience, you know, you're able to think that way, but then understand the political dynamics and try and implement that in a way that makes sense for all of your political players. But even just having that mindset as a leader is very important because the status quo is just, it doesn't last for very long. <laughs> no, but also, you know, I think the nonprofit structure mandates that mandates that sort of checks and balances and pacing because I can't make real big change at this organization unless I go to my board. Right. So the biggest challenge of a national organization is that you have a national board and they're everywhere. We don't meet that frequently. You know, there's time in between. And so everything slows down a bit if I have to keep going back to the board for things. And so the pace of change is changed because of that. But I would say that if you're somebody who sees themselves, you're in middle management, and you want to know, how do I get to the next thing? First of all, you got to apply for it. You have to recognize it and you can't reach too far. So everything is somewhat incremental. If you're the number two in a program division, then reaching to apply to be the executive of an organization is going to right. be a big reach. Right, right. It's a big reach. Yeah. Now, the, if you feel you're ready for it, but you don't know how to do that, then go start something. As I said, I'm much more entrepreneurial, right? right. I couldn't get done what I wanted to get done at public council. So I started my own thing. And... I was not close to being the executive director there, although they had a more flat structure. So I really yeah. was, I mean, I reported directly to the executive director, but I was not, I didn't have a title that suggested that I had more management experience, 
but I knew I could do it. I just had to go start my own thing. Well, I think and, and sometimes that's what's difficult in our field is sometimes our organizations are small and flat. And so there's never really a structure in which many people can see themselves moving up anywhere, <laughs> that there's any kind of tier opportunity or even understanding that your title might change or that your responsibilities might change or that right. there's any kind of dynamicness to your position in the same way that, you know, and then you're at a point where you're like, all right, I'm ready for some more money. I'm ready for some more responsibility. And then you start looking elsewhere and saying, well, I'm not going to find it here. I got to find somewhere else. So as a leader of an organization trying to figure out how do I help create that structure within my organization so that people feel that dynamic nature of their work? Yeah, well, I think that I'm sure we suffer from all of those same challenges. I mean, I was looking at the leading edge study that just came out and thinking about us in that context and mm-hmm. what I might learn from that and do. But we're very creative title-wise here, but uh, <laughs> good. But I actually look at people and think that they need to come to me. There are people that I see and I say, I want to give you more responsibility. Am I going to then suggest to them, I should pay you more money and I, you should have a bigger title? Not my job. <laughs> right. I'm also mindful that a portfolio of work should grow and change. And that doesn't necessarily mean you should be promoted per se or have a new title because of that. It just may mean that there was a shift in the priorities in the world. And so we shifted with them. And generally speaking, the parameters of your job are no different. Mm -hmm. It's just that the subject might be different. And I think you cannot start to run before you've walked. You have to show that you really are skilled at what you're doing, that you've taken it as far as you can take it, that you've invested time and energy and helped the organization in its own growth and its own expertise and experience. And the idea that you want to take it to a step up, like you want to manage people, for example, instead of just programs. There's sort of these different aspects of work that signal a promotion in order to manage a person, multiple people, entirely different programs, you know, those things signal the idea that you have to take a step up in order to do that. So right. if you're one of those two programs and now you want oversight for two programs, that means you have to be up above that. You know, just think of it like an org chart, right? Right. Same thing with if you want to manage people and that's usually a step up for folks. But I've had people come to me and say, I've been here a year and I do my job really well and I should get a promotion. And I don't even know what that means. Right. <laughs> I'm right. like, uh, no. Right. No. And then I have people who've worked here for like, I don't know, 15 years and never been promoted. Some of this, you also have to bear in mind that the organization itself has to be able to withstand that structure. Is it also like being able to demonstrate like not only am I, have I been here a year, right? Because I would say a lot of for-profit companies, that's really all you, <laughs> you need is longevity for that. But that, you know, coming to you and saying, I've been able to increase our followership in the social media and I've been able to increase our donors or I put on X programs that, you know, really helped grow the organization in this new way. Is that a better way to sell yourself? Sort of. Yeah. I don't know because the truth is that you have on the one hand, look, I do my job and I do it really well, right? Which is what everybody should be doing. Right. And you should be striving for that, right? And just because you do your job really well doesn't mean that you should get promoted out of it. Mm-hmm. Right. There's always a difference between promotion and salary. You know, we regularly, when our budget allows it, you know, we give people, you know, a raise 
And that to me is an affirmation that you're doing your job well and that you should continue in your job. Mm-hmm. There's nothing wrong with continuing in your job. Right. It doesn't mean you failed because yeah. you haven't gotten a new title. I think many people are influenced subconsciously by government because, you know, in government, right. that's where you find all of those steps, right? And in order to get more salary, you have to increase to the next step. And the nonprofit sector is not really organized like that. There's value in staying in your position for, you know, what you're able to do and learn being in a position for three years versus one year. In well, I don't consider one year to be very long at all. No. I consider one year to be like, okay, you figured out like how to work the copier. Right. I, you know, <laughs> like, time flies by so fast anyway. Right. There's always a learning curve mm-hmm. and becoming an expert in your subject area requires years. Right. I mean, literally years. Mm-hmm. And deepening that knowledge, finding new ways to grow your experience is value in and of itself. And it's valuable to the organization. You know, I have people who have come to me and told me that they are leaving because they have a new job opportunity that they really just excited about pursuing. And if I feel that it's something that is better for them, I'm always excited for them because sometimes that is the only way to grow or to change is to move to someplace new. And we have people who've come to us because of that, because they're stuck Mm -hmm. where they are. And they want to do more and they want to do something different. You mentioned earlier is that the idea that we can create an environment in which people feel like they're being encouraged to do their best and be their best and find opportunities and engage in them. I think that's fantastic. I also think it's unrealistic, Michelle. Right. I can think of maybe one person on my entire staff of 20, whatever it is, that would come to me and say, you know what? I really am starting to look for a new job. I want to talk to you about what I'm thinking and where I want to go. And what I'm just not going to do that. Wouldn't that be be, uh, something? Some people, I wish they would because I could help them. It doesn't mean I want them to go. That's the other problem, right? That's what they'd hear. If I said to somebody on my staff, wow, I know they're looking for a job over here at AJWS. You'd be great for that. They're going to think, I think they're like a loser and I want to get rid of them. I think that we're all a little bit constrained by the norms of how people operate in the workplace. We just have to live with that. Great. So I kind of want to turn it a little bit more back to you and your personal story and hear a little bit about how you keep it all together. You kind of alluded to it a little bit. You know, Mm -hmm. you figure out the time when you're traveling or you're home. So just a little more about what tools you use or utilize to feel sane in your job and the other things that you do in your life. Okay. So you know what other people don't necessarily know, which is that when I was running the Women's Law Center, been there about five and a half, six years, and I had a twin sister and her husband killed her. And they had two small children and they came to live with me. And at the time, my nephew had just turned seven and my niece was four. I was not married and I suddenly was the single mom to two very small, very traumatized children. And when I look back on that person and what she did, I have no idea how she did it. (laughs) I was still running a statewide civil rights organization. I was very engaged in the community. And then I had to manage the lives of these two little kids and I had a lot of help. So again, when I talk about the fact that there's stereotypes about Los Angeles, I had a life experience that tells me it's nothing like what people think. I know a lot of people. There's no question about it. 
But interestingly for me, I mean, a lot of the people I know are either in the entertainment industry or the legal community or politics. And some of them were elected officials and partners in law firms and movie producers. And, you know, these were people who would take my kids to soccer games and right. pick up carpool and bring over dinner and take the kids for an entire day so I could have a break. And they didn't ask. They just offered and did. And it was amazing to me. And without that help, I don't think I could have done it. Mm -hmm. So I think about the ideas of work-life balance in a way that I think a lot of people fortunately don't have to. First, it was very sudden for me. Many people now really plan around having a family. I didn't have a husband or a boyfriend or partner, whatever you want to call them. So it really was me. So being a single parent is hard. I can remember saying to people, you know, we make all those speeches about how being a single mom is really hard. Boy, were we right. <laughs> it's really hard. Yeah, yeah. And you feel like you're failing all over the place. Right. Right. You're not putting enough energy into work. You're not putting enough energy into your kids. You're kind of disappointing everyone. Mm -hmm. So I highly recommend therapy. I think that's really important. I was going to say, so what helped you kind of? Yeah, well, that's part of it. Although that takes time too. So yeah, that right. was the hysterical <laughs> part of this. It's like, it's like, I don't have time for that. I will say with technology these days, there's a lot of options out there as far as how yeah, you engage. I suppose so. I, I think asking for help is really important. Yeah. And I don't think people do that very easily. I certainly didn't. I had to learn how to make choices and prioritize stuff. And the truth is I did things that I rationalized at the time, but I think in hindsight, they really were the right thing. I in the evening, my kids, their the extended childcare where they were in school ended at five. I mean, my workday, that was like the middle of the afternoon as far right. as I was concerned. So I would, I'd pick them up. I was always late. I was always that mom that was the last one to pick up her kids. At least I never forgot them. I will say that. There you go. Um, Plus. And I'd bring them back to the office. They'd do their homework in the conference room and I would keep working. Now, they couldn't last that long. So I would work at home. But I often had evening events I had to go to and mm -hmm. they would come with me. We would have a deal that I had to stay for the cocktail reception because that's when I would connect with people and be right. the most visible. And that's really what I was trying to do, of course. And I would say, okay, we're going to do the cocktail hour and then they'll blink the lights to go in for the dinner and we can leave. I remember this one evening where I... Uh, <laughs> They learned how to work a room like no one you've ever seen. Oh, that's awesome. I mean, it's unbelievable. They were little. I'm telling yeah. you, they were like, Laura must have been like, I don't know, six, seven years old. Phillips, like, you know, eight or nine. We would go up in the elevator from the garage, get to the event, and I'd never see them. <laughs> disappear, you know? I can remember I was in the middle of talking to somebody, some legal thing, because I think I was talking to a judge. And they blink the lights to go in for dinner. We're just still chatting because that's what you do. Of course, you don't pay any attention to those lights. And suddenly there were these two little people vump, right next to me. <laughs> you said we could leave. You said we could uh, leave. I'm like, okay. <laughs> the lights blinked. The lights blinked. They are amazingly social. They're unbelievably comfortable with people. Mm -hmm. They have a presence among strangers in unfamiliar situations that I don't think they ever would have had otherwise. They can speak in public. They are very comfortable doing that. They know how to just be themselves, but they can be very polished. And I think a lot of that came from that experience. And at the time, I was horribly guilt-ridden that I was doing Right, right. So you just, you just do whatever you have to do in those cases, I think. The interesting thing is that now when I 
don't have two small children because they're grownups, now I feel guilty about not taking care of myself. It's like, you cannot win. That's just right. No, <laughs> definitely so, not. So I think if I leave work, you know, what I consider early, I like, oh, who's looking? Who can see that? Oh, no. <laughs> so it never goes away. One of the things about running an organization, which I guess we didn't really spend a lot of time on, but I think the biggest challenge around this is there's no such thing as turning the switch off. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm never off. Absolutely. Well, it's also not apologizing for that, right? Everyone is different. Mm-hmm. And for some people, they need it and some people, they don't. And it's yeah. not feeling guilty for that being the case, that that's who you are and that's what it is. Yeah. And, you know, trying not to apologize for it because that's not how other people are. Well, you know what's funny? I would say one of the biggest adjustments I had to make in moving from the general nonprofit sector to the Jewish nonprofit sector was that Saturday is the day when you don't do stuff. Because (laughs) I came out of a context in which I would get things done. I'd work all day on Saturday or half the day or whatever. And then Sunday I did nothing. And when I started doing this work at Mazone, I would get all these emails from board members on Sundays, but not on Saturday. And I'd be like, oh, shoot. I had to figure this out a little bit better about how I manage my downtime. Well, there you go. That's the biggest difference between working in the Jewish community and the secular community. I will say one thing. There's one piece of advice that I don't follow very well that I think that people should. And that is that if you truly want to be away from work, meaning that you're either on vacation, it's the weekend, it's the evening, don't answer people because they will learn. Even if you say to yourself, well, just this one time, it will never be just that one time because Mm -hmm. now you've taught people that you are paying attention. And you will respond. And having said that, do I like it when people do that to me? No. But I am also mindful of the fact that I think that if people understand that the norm is that time is someone else's, it's not work time. But if you reach out to them, there must be something important. Then they'll flex with you around that. Well, it's interesting. I've actually stopped doing out of office messages when I'm Mm. on vacation or for holidays. First of all, I kind of, I kind of find them annoying. <laughs> like I hate it when I go to send yeah. something and like there's, and then like they actually do respond, right? This issue we talk yes. about. And then there's more of those. And I'm like, if I never say that I'm out of the office and I'm always kind of setting the precedent that you're going to send me an email and I will answer it when I'm ready to answer it. And you don't need to know that it's going to be three days or five days or one day. And I don't know, it's something that I've just recently started doing and that I'm just like, I'm done with this. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I'm done with this whole out of office business. Yes. Will that work for you even if you're gone for a prolonged period of time? We'll see. So far, so good. And luckily it's, I do as much as I can to prep before I leave so that there's not too much that's coming in. And then I turn off my phone and if it comes back, you know, I say, oh, I'm so sorry. I was out for a few days. Let me get you. Mm-hmm. So I'll tell you in like a year if it's still okay. working out. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I would like to know. Yeah. yeah. When I take real vacation, like I'm really on vacation, I also shut my email off. I don't. Yeah. So I turn it off on my phone. Yeah. Like it's not, mm-hmm. you don't open my laptop. It's always a balance. It's always a game to try and figure out how to help make that all work. We've covered a lot of ground. Anything else from our conversation that you're still sitting with or that you'd like to mention? The thing I value most about the work I do is the people I work with. I find them passionate and committed and engaging and smart and thoughtful. And you have to have a sense of humor. You really can't work in this stuff. 
I think that's the biggest value of working in the Jewish social justice space. When I did the leadership work that I did in the Jewish community, people were always asking me about how I found my passion and how can they find theirs and work in that space. And I don't really know. I don't think it's necessary to be able to do really good work and to be really committed to it, to find that it is your core raison d'etre. You know, right. <laughs> it is, it's about feeling good about what you're doing and knowing that you're making a difference and having a team of people that you really want to be with because you're with them a lot and, mm-hmm. and being able to create a culture in which people feel valued and engaged is a big part of what I want to do here at Amazon. Well, I'm sure you are succeeding, Abby, and I am so thrilled to have been able to have this conversation with you and learn a little bit more about your experience. So thank you so much for participating. Well, thank you for having me, Michelle. It's been a pleasure. Abby is an incredible person that I'm lucky to know in the real world who has forged her leadership through some difficult situations. What she has learned along the way is applicable to everyone in or hoping to be in leadership positions. Abby has a unique skill when working with her staff where she can tune into the spark inside her employees and exploit that bright spot, not only for the organization's benefit, but for the individual's benefit as well. Knowing your staff's strengths and molding the position around them is a topic I'll be exploring in later episodes. Maybe this is a skill that you could learn, a skill you could practice, especially if this important interpersonal insight does not come easily to you. There are other skills too that are required to be in a position like Abby's. The ability to execute on a vision, being flexible with your time and tasks to get the work done, and being able to do the push and pull dance that comes along with working with people in an organization. Abby encourages us to start our own thing, and that if we feel we have the skills and a passion for work that's not being done, then we should start it. I recently published a blog post for reformjudaism.org where I discuss the process I went through to create this project and encourage others to not let fear be a barrier to starting something new. You can find a link to that article on our website. As you may have noticed, we have moved our publishing schedule to release episodes on Mondays to both improve my sanity and weekend enjoyment. I hope our episodes provide insight and encouragement for starting your week. This program has been funded in part by the Jim Joseph Foundation. Our editor is Nick Bowden of Bowden Sound, and our fiscal sponsor is Jewish Creativity International. You can find previous episodes, guest bios, book recommendations, articles, and more on our website. It's whoyouknowthepodcast.com. This is your host, Michelle W. Malkin. Thank you for listening. Have a wonderful week and a great start to 2018.